Numbers 19, verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring you a red heifer without blemish, in which there is no defect on which a yoke has never come. So we're going to begin the preparation of this heifer that is going to act as a cleansing agent in ceremonially in uh, what it is that the Israelites are doing for worship. It starts with one, this red heifer, the rare beast that it is, red being the symbol of Jesus Christ's blood. And that's what it comes down to. When you study Ezekiel and you study the book of Revelation, you see living creatures that worship God. They have the face, they have four faces, the face of man, the face of the eagle, uh, the face of here, the heifer. The heifer symbolizes, and the face of the lion, the, the face of the heifer symbolizes the animal that would carry your burden. The one that would do your work and your labor for you. So as far as our salvation, right, we're saved by grace, not of works. Right? Somebody else did the work. This, this great symbolic heifer here is doing the work of purification. He, he's going to be sacrificed to the Lord and his ashes used uh, to purify the people in their relationship with the Lord. This is a symbol of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice that is poured out. Secondly, on which there, you know, a yoke has never come. So no earthly, um, you know, burden, no, no thing that would cause us to think of this creature as being merely a man. You know, G Jesus is so far elevated above this state of existence, the slavery. While he himself is the king of glory, he became the slave. It didn't make him a meaningless slave. You shall give to Eliezer the priest, that he may take it outside the camp, and it shall be slaughtered before him. Jesus was killed outside of Jerusalem. Very specifically killed outside Jerusalem. There's a great conflict over whether he was going to be killed you know, somewhere inside, stoned to death, or taken outside the city and uh, dealt with in the way that he was. So thousands of years before Jesus, you have this symbol of Jesus here that's going to be slaughtered in similar ways. Eliezer the priest shall take some of its blood with his forefinger and sprinkle some of its blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. I will often make reference to the bloodshed of Jesus Christ. Because it was actually quite long. It began in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, is Rebecca in the room? No? Good. So I can talk about my daughter since she's not here. They always get mad when I talk about them and they're in the room. I know that they're watching, but they'd have to rush in and stop me. And anyway. Um, they, uh, Rebecca had a... Um, I was just going to say stubbornness, but it was a steadfastness, okay, that uh, caused it to be that on a couple of occasions, Lori and I took note of, as we were correcting her, she would get so hardened 
in her position. I'm talking little girl. That just like that childlike stubbornness that comes out, just clenched fists, and she's locked down on her subject. That uh, she would actually burst blood vessels in her face. The strain of my will versus your will, right? And uh, I've actually, from that, studied um, you know that that occurrence, and it's it's a real thing. Jesus sweating great jobs of blood is not something that's just fictionally created for the scripture. This happens medically. Under strain, under duress, under depression, under anxiety. Grows so intense, it can force that blood right out through the skin. The bleeding of Jesus Christ began at the Garden of Gethsemane. And where did it begin? Same place it began with my daughter. For real. The Heavenly Father has a will that Jesus would die. Jesus doesn't want to die. And the conflict that is there that causes the bloodshed is Jesus saying, I don't want to go to the cross. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours be done. That bloodshed continued as they arrested him. And that was a big arrest, big in its appearance. More than 600 Roman soldiers came to arrest Jesus Christ. A Roman cohort was assigned along with the priests, and their temple guards. So you've got seven, eight hundred people here present who Jesus asks, uh, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He replies with two words, and they are the title name of God from this Old Testament when he says, I am, and it flattens them all to the ground. Proving you're not here to overwhelm me. You're not here to arrest me. I'm going to submit to my heavenly father and thereby I'm going to submit to you and you're going to take me into custody and you're going to do to me what my heavenly father has said, which is immediately begin beating and abusing him. The bloodshed continues until he's at the home of the high priest, until he's gone through all of the tortures See, he's going to be killed outside the city, but there's going to be a sprinkling of his blood that begins in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's going to continue all the way until they nail him on that cross. This taking of the blood and dipping his finger and sprinkling it is symbolic of the fact that Jesus Christ is going to suffer through this whole process until he is outside the camp, until he is crucified. But the bloodshed, where is it going to be found? Right here? Right at the temple. Because they're the most guilty, right? You think about this. They're the law enforcement officers. I don't know if you're aware of that. When these men come to arrest Jesus Christ, they are the ultimate legal authority in Jerusalem. And they break every law in the book. You cannot arrest a man according to Jewish law in the Old Testament at night cause for incorrect incarceration. You might grab the wrong person in the confusion, right? Other things that go on legally in this battle, God wants to avoid. He wants to avoid violence at night because, right, you're a home asleep in your bed, pitch black, you haven't done anything. Suddenly people burst into your house and you start defending yourself. You might be defending yourself against law enforcement. 
God therefore says, yeah, no law enforcement in the middle of the night. You want to go arrest somebody? You got to verify everything, and then you go during the day. They're breaking the law through and through. You see, justice reform is needed even here, right? How do you how do you get justice reform? You look at God's word, you examine it for what it says and why, and then you obey God's word. That's how you accomplish it. You know, people that are acting like, oh, you know, our culture's, you know, following the Bible. That's why things are so messed up. No, our culture isn't following the Bible. Not even remotely. Our culture has rejected the Bible. In fact, we've taken the vote, right? 1963, kick him right out of school. Done. Don't want God around anymore. And we're still dealing with that. Our culture is still dealing with that. Here, the blood is going to be shed. Now notice here, it says, the heifer shall be burned in his sight. It's hide, it's flesh, it's blood, it's offal. That's, uh, you know, it's entrails shall be burned. The priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast them in the midst of the fire, burning the heifer. So the cedar wood, symbolic of the cross that he was going to be crucified on. Um, if you think that that's a stretch that we've, put that as the cross. Uh, you can see on the occasion when they're told how to purify the lepers, that they're to take two doves and place one of them inside an earthen vessel. Our bodies are earthen vessels, right? The same 17 elements that make up your human frame can be found in the dirt right outside the door. You're just brilliantly arranged mud. That's all you are. Some of us go to the gym and spend a lot of money to rearrange that mud <clears throat> okay other churches do that but anyway you know within this circle of the sacrifice that is occurring the cedar wood represents the cross the hyssop is often questioned dry herb very bitter it was meant to symbolize the bitterness that is created by sin that you know you can't come to a situation follow this you can't come to a situation where you would need to be cleansed by this heifer and the ashes of this heifer and just brush it off. Like, oh, no, I probably ought to go through that. Let's go, let's go down and just get the ashes of the heifer. And straight. No, the point is you need to absorb the bitterness that's involved with this also. A creature's life had to be lost in order for you to find forgiveness and grace with God. It should be that no matter how callous a person you are, if you literally have to watch an animal die and understand that's happening because of my sins, it should affect your heart very deeply. That you would be moved by the loss. There's, there's a profound difference, and we've talked about this many times, between what the Scripture calls lament and what the Scripture calls repent. Right? Repentance is to turn around 180 degrees, go the opposite direction, do the opposite thing. More than anything, think the opposite thing. That's where rented, uh, repentance begins, metanoia, the, the opposite way of thinking. Your thinking has to be reversed. Okay, That's repentance. Uh, lamentation, right? lament versus repent, simply means to be filled with sorrow. A lot of people don't combine these two things. They'll turn around briefly. They're going to turn right back around and do a full 360 and go right back to what they're doing because there's no, there's no lament in their heart. Or they're a person who simply doesn't turn around at all. They're just filled with lamentation, sorrow. 
And they can express it to you endlessly. And, and they're very convincing. Oh, this poor person caught in their sin. And, you know, I was going to be offended with them. But look at how brokenhearted they are and how much they're crying. And nothing changes. It has to be the proper combination of both the lamentation and the repentance. Scarlet, obviously the symbol of Jesus Christ's blood again, could be scarlet thread. We see that uh, used elsewhere when they are performing ceremonies. Then the priest shall wash his clothes. He shall bathe in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp. The priest shall be unclean until evening. So in the presence of the butchered animal, but not actually handling all of the butchering, he's unclean until evening, but able to return. We'll see here in a moment the others that are present. The one who burns it shall wash his clothes in water, bathe in water, shall be unclean until evening. The man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place, and they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water of purification. It is for purifying from sin. The one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It shall be a statute forever to the children of Israel and the stranger who dwells with them. Once again, the stranger who dwells with them. So not... Uh, just the person who is an Israelite. God very much makes the mandate that uh, this is the ordinance spiritually, which means morally, which means politically. Here's the ordinance. It applies to all of these different levels for the entire nation of Israel and anyone who comes into the nation of Israel as a stranger. There are not two sets of rules, right? Often, it's pointed, you know, to the scripture to say, oh, well, we should be like the scripture. Look over here. You know, we're, we're accepting of it. And here's this. Are we actually applying what is being said here? Because this says there's going to be one law, one moral law, one political law, one spiritual law for everybody. You come into the country, you're welcome to come in. Welcome to migrate into the land. Welcome to become Jewish. To stay there and live there. If you're going to be there, you're going to abide by these biblical laws and principles. You know, comparing America to this ancient Israel and the way it was is often done very inappropriately. You know, people are pointing at America and you know talking about you know allow let's allow you know all of this Muslim influence into our country. You know, allowing Muslims. To enter the country, that's a brilliant idea. So it's really a brilliant idea if we keep this principle right here. That says you're going to come into the land, then you're going to worship Jesus Christ in this way. If you're not going to do that, it's the absolute worst possibility. Why? Because no one has freedom under Islam. Sharia law will rob every single person of their freedom, including the one who wields the law. Lost in the process. What God is putting forward here is worship of me. Everyone who lives inside my borders needs to worship me. I'm not going to do that. I'm not accepted within my borders. The stranger who dwells among you. He who touches the dead body of anyone 
shall be unclean seven days. So still dealing with this issue of uncleanness, the heifer and how the ashes and the water are going to purify. So now we're getting to specifics. Going to be unclean for seven days. He shall purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Third and seventh. Um, why? God said so. That's why. Simple as that. Okay. Third day. Resurrection. Right? sign of the trinity many biblical symbols in regard to that third day seventh day we often will say seven number of perfection really it's the number of completion okay yeah god finished his creation and rested on the seventh day so this idea is one you would be observing the holiness of god the trinity the third day the day of resurrection and you would also be honoring the completion of his creation, of your purification, of the work of the Lord in this moment. And consider your own heart. I'm sure every one of us in our process of growing has had some small thing that sort of reflects this. God tells us, okay, look, I want you to do this. Make this commitment to me. And we follow through on a portion of it, but we leave off another portion of it. And we find in the process of, uh, there's a lack of fulfillment here. Because I really only went as far as I wanted to go. Biting the bullet, following through with the commitment is significantly important in the life of the believer. Right? When we read the Old Testament and the question is raised, who can dwell in the presence of the Lord? One of the things that is recorded is the person who swears to his own hurt and yet follows through. That's profoundly missing in Christianity. A lot of people jump right up and that's me. I'll volunteer and fade right off. Consider. Consider how that affects you. Not only just the body of Christ and other extenuating circumstances. Consider how that affects you in your relationship with God. Being someone who follows through is significantly important to your maturity, your growth, your cleansing, both portions, third day and seventh. Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of God. That person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him. How can he get defile the temple? The, most of these people don't ever come in contact with the temple. They don't go to the temple. They bring their sacrifice to the temple. They bring their sacrifice to the priest. They're not inside the tabernacle, not inside where the Ark of the Covenant is. How? Why? Because they're defiling the entire congregation. They themselves are defiled. They have a cavalier approach to it. They don't seek any cleansing in the process. So now my defilement defiles you, and you defile the next, and we are all defiled together because they haven't taken the seriousness of what the Lord has recorded here and said, I need to abide by these things. The, the church is so profoundly corrupt today in the things that it thinks, believes, teaches, behaves itself in. You talk to most Christians 
about morality in general, and they're offended if you try to raise a standard of purification that comes from the Scripture. They're upset with you over that. Why? Because this has been the function of the church for centuries now. They don't care. They're not, they're not, they don't care about the defilement at all. So what? Uh, I touched something that was dead. You know, you go, well, come on. I mean, where does this apply? I don't know. Just think around your life for a while. Right? You know? The internet, the television, the book rack, the conversations. What? You figure it out. Right? Because the defilement is there. Death, spiritual death, is all around us. We are constantly coming in contact with it. We, not, we need constantly be purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. That has to be flowing into our lives all the time. If, if it is not, I guarantee you you're defiled sitting here right now. I don't say that, that, that as like some kind of holier-than-thou talk. This is like the extended hand. To say, let's rise up out of that. How can I help pull you out of that? How can I encourage you to seek the cleansing of Jesus Christ and be done with these things? It's remarkable the way the church conducts itself. This is the law when a man dies in a tent. All who come into the tent and all who are in the tent shall be unclean seven days. Every open vessel which has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Whoever is in the open field and touches one who is slain by the sword or who has died or a bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. So wherever it is, you literally come in contact with a dead body. It's going to defile you. Any place that you come in contact with something that's spiritually dead, it's going to affect you. Okay, we, we've talked Recently, about a couple of examples of spiritual death and how it's going on in the church today. That was Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, you have Barnabas who sold a piece of land, and he brings the, all, the whole sum in and gives it to Peter and says, done deal, man, Lord laid that on my heart. And everybody goes, wow, man, that giving money and land makes you a cool Christian. So Ananias and Sapphira... Um, uh, sell a piece of property and then they take a big portion of the funds off from that for themselves and then they present the remaining portion to Peter and the apostles as though uh, we sold a piece of land and we brought the entire sum of money from that sale to you and here we wanted to give it to you. And uh, Peter confronts Ananias and says, you know, you're lying to the Holy Spirit and he's struck dead right there in the moment and a short while later, Sapphira, his wife, comes in and Pete says, Hey, um, do you guys sell a piece of land and get such and such a sum of money for it? Yeah. And so that money that you gave us, that's the whole sum of the money? And she says, Absolutely. And he said, You know, the guys that just buried your husband are just coming through the door now and they'll bury you also. Now here's the deal. What was going on was hypocrisy. Straight up lies, saying, I behave to this degree, when in fact, I only behave to this degree. Right? And they were struck dead in the moment. So God is telling the church, hypocrisy is a deadly sin. 
So you now you have to assume one of two things happened from that point forward. Either the church was completely purged of hypocrisy, right? Because you don't see people dropping dead after that. Or you have to assume that hypocrisy continued to go on in the church. But God didn't want to go around killing every single hypocrite. <laughs> There'd be nobody in the church. Instead, what he was doing was historically pointing back to Ananias and Sapphira and saying, did you not notice my example? You are presently dead if you're living in hypocrisy. No? Let's look at Ananias and Sapphira. Oh, same thing? That's you? Then there you are. The Lord sets examples throughout the scripture, and then we are required to look back at them. Right? The church misinterprets God's patience as being God's grace. We just had a um, week Bible study about that this week with a group of guys. God's grace is not the same as his patience, right? God is patient, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. How do you come to repentance? By God's grace. His grace causes you to leave that sin. His grace doesn't just whitewash the sin, right? Think about how much he's saying that is wrong. Think about how much he confronts the religious leaders saying to them, you're like whitewashed tombs. You get all the junk inside, but outside you look spiffy. You're really nailing it on the outside. Inside you're dead. The church needs to be painfully aware of this. You know, you come across spiritual death in your own life. If you're sitting there right now and you're thinking about that one sin, that one thing, like that is definitely spiritual death in my life. If that's the case, you need to be purified from it, cleansed of it. It needs to be washed away. It can't reside in your life. It's, it's presently producing death in your life. Consider what the Lord might be saying to you. And for an unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the heifers burnt for purification. The heifer burnt for purification from sin. Running water shall be put on them in a vessel. A clean person shall take hyssop. And dip it in the water. So you know, think of like a long herb and they dip it in there like a, almost like a paintbrush. And sprinkle it on the tent or on the vessel or on the person who were there. Or on the one who touches the bone, the slain, the dead, or a grave. The clean person shall sprinkle the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. On the seventh day he shall purify himself, wash his clothes, bathe in water, and at evening he shall be clean. Well, how does this make me clean? Symbolically, th this was set up as a religious ritual so that they would reflect upon, okay, move forward into the New Testament. You've taken communion. How does that do anything for you? Right? It doesn't contain magic. It doesn't have a mystical attribute as some of Christianity falsely teaches, right? Here's the priest. He's got special powers. He converts it. He gives it to you. And as you consume of it, it becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ according to their false teachings. That's not what the scripture says at all. It's not what Jesus nor Paul said about taking communion. He said, you need to do this in remembrance of me, right? Remembrance of me. 
if you need a heart transplant and I'm killed in a car wreck and you get my heart and now my heart is inside your body. There should be a profound respect for the fact that someone else's life was sacrificed in order for you to live. And at times you may drift away from that and not think about that. But, boy, if you're literally carrying someone else's organ in your body that's keeping you alive, stopping every now and then and just remembering what they've given up for you, that seems appropriate. And this is what Jesus is saying, and this is what Paul is saying about communion. You need to stop regularly and examine the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and what it provides for you. There isn't some mystical, magical thing, right? You can't leave, you know, wretched sin, walk through the door, smoke and hell pouring off of you, and then just take communion and walk out the door like, whew, that was close. If I had died before I got to that altar, that could have been sketchy. At that point, you've got to seriously consider the fact that you're abusing the grace that God has provided, the life that he has given. The church has turned so many of these things into just vain, empty rituals. They don't mean anything. Oh, last Sunday of the month, communion. Well, let's get together, slap down the cracker and the wine, and now let's be on our way. I have to check my own heart every time I come to that altar and share that with you guys. i got to look deep inside my own soul, and I always, always recognize the ways that I've been callous to Christ. It's in the remembering. It's in the mind. The whole of our battle is in the mind, the control of the mind. The submission to God's word. The submission of the human mind to God's word. Right? Paul brings that very clearly to the discussion in Corinthians when he says the weapons of our warfare are not you know, carnal. They're not fleshly. They're not earthly. They're not of the world. But they are mighty through God to the pulling down of the strongholds. What strongholds? We we gonna go attack the satanic library and like burn it to the ground or what, what does he mean? Strongholds. He tells us right in that passage that the stronghold is in our heart, taking into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. The warfare that we're talking about, the the fortitude, the fortresses that our enemy has constructed are in our thought process. It's in the mind. Now, when you start reading, I'll, I'll never forget, right? <clears throat> Make note of this. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably the most brilliant sermon in all of recorded history. He gets to the end, and he said all throughout those you know, three chapters, 5, 6, and 7, uh, he said over and over again, you've heard it said, but I tell you, you've heard it said, and he'll give an example you know, you've heard it said, right, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that the man who has lusted after a woman in his own heart has already committed adultery with her in his own heart. Okay, so, so he puts the sin in the thought, not in the action. The action is an eventual. Where did the sin begin? In the thought. Over and over, Jesus puts the sin in the thought. 
And then he gets to the end, and it's recorded there in Matthew chapter 7 that all the people were astonished at him because he taught as one having authority, not as the religious leaders of his day. Meaning they did not teach with authority. They say things like, you know, when I think about that, it really just makes me feel more like, you know, and then they fill in the blank. And that's what our culture is doing, isn't it? You talk to people about God and they will say things like, you know, when I think about God, I think of him more like, and then they'll give their definition. Your definition doesn't mean anything. No, I'm not trying to be insultive. I'm not trying to be childish or rude. I mean it. Your definition does not mean anything. There, there is that which is truth and of God, and there is that which is opinions of men. What destroys those things? God's word. God's word reaches right inside and says, no, this is the way it's going to be. Why do I have to purify myself? Why do I have to do it? Because the scripture says so. Because God said this is the method. This is what's, why. Because it's pointing to Jesus Christ and what he's going to come and be for these people. Verse 20, but the man who is unclean and does not purify himself, that person shall be cut off from among the assembly. Cut off. That may literally mean put to death. Definitely it means excommunicated. Um, think about all the people that are in your life and have been in your life for as long as they've been in your life. Okay, as of today, you can't ever see any of them again. That level of cut off ever again. There was a, a capital form of punishment to this that, you know, you might read and think, well, that's kind of cruel. That's kind of over the top. No, the Lord is saying, look, for the health of the entire congregation, we got to get rid of you. Why? Because you disrespect the fact that you're unclean. You don't have a reverence for the fact that God can cleanse you, right? God isn't like, oh, you're unclean. I hate unclean things. I want to get rid of you. God is like, you're unclean. Now I've made this provision for you to be clean. And you say, no, I don't want that. Don't like that. I'm not going to participate in that. Then you've automatically separated yourself from the rest of the congregation. Whether you recognize it or not, the death has entered in. And the separation in spirit, the separation in fellowship has already occurred. It's a tough thing as a pastor, you guys, to watch people over the years who do this with their life. You can see that they're just wrecking themselves with their sin and they try to stay on the fringe of fellowship and the company of God. And eventually that creates such conflict that they have to leave. And usually as they go, they blame it on everybody else. There's a purification that is available in Christ. And none of this is him sitting in some high, lofty position saying, you know, away with you. <laughs> his whole position is right down on his hands and knees begging us to come into him. Doors wide open, come to me. And what we're saying is, don't want it, not interested. You know, maybe even sit at a, a spiritual distance and talk with others and act with others like, yeah, I know it's right and it should be and I want it. And on the end of it, I don't want any of it. 
I'm not personally committed to it. Death. Ananias and Sapphira, the destruction of the individual. The man who is unclean does not purify himself. That person shall be cut off from among the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of, God, of the Lord. The water of purification has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. Now, two more portions uh, to this as we look at it in uh, discussion. Uh, what is the sanctuary of the Lord? <laughs> right? New Testament. It's us. Right? We've got a tabernacle here. We've got a tent that moves around, and then we'll have a temple where the Ark of the Covenant, but where does that reside now? My heart, your heart. So this impurity that has entered in, now how, how does that blood of the, the, the ash of the heifer, the red heifer, the bitterness uh, of sorrow and repentance, and, and you know the symbol of his blood, that scarlet that is included, how do I get that into my life today? The water symbolizes his word, does it not? He says that outright to the disciples. He says, I've already cleansed you with the washing of the water of the word. He encourages husbands within the church to cleanse their wives with the washing of the water of God's word. That we would make it presented to our family in such a way, easily accessible, encouraged that it would flow into their lives, that the water of God's word would cleanse us. When people come to me and, oh, you know, Pastor Will, can I talk to you? Sure. And, and my marriage is a disaster and my finances, are, and I think I'm going to quit my job and I'm just, and life is chaos and I can't stand, I'm out of my mind, I'm crazy. And I'll just say, when was the last time we were in the word? Because usually when the expression is that desperate, it's been a long time. Days, weeks, months, years. These are the typical answers that I get. Been months. Been months. Again, you guys, I know the struggle. I, don't, don't misunderstand me as standing here acting like, oh, I'm you know, so much better than you measly Christians. It's just, you should be like me. I know the struggle. We know the struggle, right? If I ask for a show of hands here in this room, please don't. If I ask for a show of hands in this room of how many people have struggled to maintain their relationship with the Lord, their time in the Word, their devotional life, every hand should go up, right? It's difficult. It's challenging. The thing that's going to cleanse you, right, is the washing of the water by his word. That's got, and it's got to contain, right? It's got to contain Christ. You say, of course it contains Christ. No, it doesn't. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, it's 5 a.m., got to do my devotions, and you sit down, and you're done, and you go off to do whatever. And did Jesus penetrate your heart? Probably not. Not in those cases where we're treating it like Oh, this is just that check mark I got to tick off here. You know, I'm also going to have to tick off laundry and cook eggs, and you know what I'm saying? And that's how meaningless it has become. Does Christ intermingled with that word? Right? Does he have permission to just jump right up off the page at the second verse and say, that's as far as we're going, Will? We're going to deal with you. On that, in your own life, in your own household. 
Does he have that permission? To be living and real and contained within the Scripture, the water of the Word, to bring his purification to your life? Does it, does it, does it go down bitter? Right? No? Do yourself some favor. Find, find some hyssop tea. Seriously. Find some hyssop tea. Don't put any sweetener in it. Brew it nice and strong. Sip on that for a while. It'll turn your face. It's bitter. It's bitter. And here, right, the scripture is telling us it needs to contain that bitterness. As you're taking it in, you need to think about, ah, this is who I am. This is the wretch that I am. I need to get right. I need to examine myself for what I am. And that crimson thread, <laughs> crimson interwoven, right? His blood. Red heifer, yeah. Hard to see sometimes, but Jesus interwoven. It's a separate subject, but I always include it in my weddings to remind the bride and groom what the scripture says about a threefold cord is not easily broken. Okay? And my statement is to say that the wedding, the marriage, the ceremony that we're doing is filled with human weakness, right? You stand two people up and say, Do you? Yes. Do you? Yes. Will you? Yes. Will you? Yes. Kiss the bride. Here's your ring. Be on your way. Like that is just so magically powerful that nothing could ever penetrate that relationship, right? Any of us that have been married know it's severe. It's difficult. It's not easy. And simply making those vows doesn't provide the strength that's necessary. Threefold cord is not easily broken. We can take a half rotten shoestring, you know, some piece of tie down off in one of the lobster boats, and then high grade tensile strength stainless steel. We braid all three of those together and then hang the big steel object off the end of that. None of us is looking at that going, I had no idea that shoelace was that strong. None of us is thinking, wow, I didn't think lobster rope could hold that up. When we see the strength that's there, we automatically equate it to that stainless steel strand is holding all of that there. Jesus Christ is the strength. The strength of the marriage. Jesus in this is the thing that's going to perform the work. You have to have that living entity of Jesus involved in your purification. If you're approaching it from some other psychological point of view, you're missing the point altogether. If you're approaching it from some sociological point of view, you're missing the point altogether. There is a spiritual problem in every single one of us that has to be purified by Jesus Christ. And the Lord understood that here in the Old Testament when he said to these people, you cannot take the defilement of this nation lightly. You can't just brush this to the side. This is a thing that must be dealt with continuously. 
If you're sitting here thinking, oh, well, you know, he's specifically talking about physical dead bodies and physical. And so now you're talking about the microbial world and and the way that those things would have caused death and illness to come in. Well, wait a minute. OK. Let's say that we are. Let's say we are. We're, we're going to wrap this up. But let's say that that's what the Lord is talking about. What in the world does a burnt heifer have to do with cleansing anything? Right? If burnt heifers were some form and method to purify, then we would have discovered that. We'd probably be using it in the medical community today. It's a spiritual issue. And all eyes on Jesus. This is what he's pointing to. Where are you in the sincerity of your relationship with God? Because you're surrounded by death. Everywhere you go, it's death. I, I shocked a poor woman. I was in a conversation. I shocked a poor woman in the grocery store when I just interjected into their conversation. And I said, no, I'm sorry. They were talking about coronavirus. And I said, uh, I'm sorry, but not even war increases death. And she jerked back and, you know, started the process of, well, of course, you know, she's trying to explain to me how it does. And I said, no, 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 10 out of 10 people die. We all die. There's a death sentence upon every single one of us. You've come in contact with death. How? You're a human being. <coughs> you need Jesus Christ <coughs> to deliver you. <coughs> now I'll die. <coughs> so. Whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean. And the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. <coughs> so make no mistake. We'll close with that. You can stand with me. Spiritual death affects you and your whole life. And <coughs> it affects everyone around you. If, if you feel like, well, I'm not that dead. You're completely dead. Regardless of where we are, we need this healing resurrection that comes from Jesus Christ. If we have turned our faith into some ritualistic form where we lost grip with how tragic our circumstances are and how there is only one answer for that, and we've lost touch with that. The morning, this morning is the morning of repentance. <coughs> Let Jesus Christ <coughs> touch your heart, change your life, and grant you the restoration of life that he wants for you. Father, I thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. I pray that you would fill each of us with your spirit. Help us to be men and women who examined our own hearts in bitterness and sorrow in truth, <clears throat> that we would understand what it was you were saying to us personally here this morning. Minister to us as only you can. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.